You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another edition of the Corporate Report podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorporateReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the 20th day of December 2019. And welcome to episode 370 of the Corporate Report podcast, The Afghanistan Papers, Our Establishment, Whitewash BS. Oh, yes, the Afghanistan Papers. The Afghanistan Papers. Have you heard about the Afghanistan Papers? These explosive, revelatory documents that are going to utterly demolish the myths of the Afghanistan war once and for all. In fact, never has such an important treasure trove of documentary evidence about an ongoing U.S. military engagement been released since the Pentagon Papers. Oh yes, the Afghanistan Papers, brought to you by the truth-telling truth-tellers at the truthiest of truthy MSM outlets, the Washington Post. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes. We've been at war for 18 years now. We're not winning, we're not losing. Presidents come and go, but nothing really seems to change. Vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. Our troops will fight to win. We will fight to win. So how are we going to tell this story? And we thought through these documents, these first-hand interviews from people who were involved, and yet this material had been suppressed for so long, that this was an original way to tell the story of all the failures in Afghanistan. We're, we're basically fighting the wrong way. We just left the Afghans with us off because we didn't know how the story was going to end. We are not really here to win. Hmm. We're basically fighting the wrong way. We just let the Afghans rip us off. Hmm, I'm no expert here, but do you think there may be some establishment BS narrative worming its way into this treasure trove of documents that are being released by the Bezos CIA post? Yeah, I, I tend to think there may be. So let's, let's roll up our sleeves and take a look at this and see what we can actually find is being revealed by this explosive set of documents. Now, the first question to ask is, well, what are the Afghanistan Papers anyway? Because I'm sure you've heard about them by this point, but like most people, I assume you've probably seen a story or two, maybe a headline, but uh, some new documents that shed more information about the Afghanistan war. It's some big coup for the truth and getting at the heart of the military, intelligence, media, government, bankster, conglomerate, a complex that uh, so obviously dictates military policy these days, right? Wrong. So let's get into the actual specifics of this, and we'll go straight to the horse's mouth, because why take some secondary source on it when we've got the Washington Post to explain it all to us? And they started their series of this, again, this exclusive obtained by the Bezos CIA Post in early December 2019, they started this series with an article, At War With The Truth. U.S. officials constantly said they were making progress, they were not, and they knew it, an exclusive post-investigation found. 
And this explains, A confidential trove of government documents obtained by the Washington Post reveals that senior U.S. officials failed to tell the truth about the war in Afghanistan throughout the 18-year campaign, making rosy pronouncements they knew to be false and hiding unmistakable evidence the war had become unwinnable. The documents were generated by a federal project examining the root failures of the longest armed conflict in U.S. history. They include more than 2,000 pages of previously unpublished notes of interviews with people who played a direct role in the war, from generals and diplomats to aid workers and Afghan officials. Okay, so a couple of things to note right off the bat. First of all, this isn't exactly... These aren't documents per se, they're transcripts of interviews that were conducted with whom? With people who were involved in waging the Afghanistan war in some capacity. So these are not exactly unbiased sources, and this is not the inner super-secret details that they've been desperately trying to keep from the public, so much as it is just some things that might embarrass a general or two, but do nothing to undermine the fundamental narrative of the Afghanistan war itself. Um, more on which later, but let's also just take a look at the, the sort of explanation of what these interviews are and when they come from. Uh, the interviews are the byproduct of a project led by Sopko's agency, that's John Sopko, the head of the federal agency that conducted these interviews, the Office of the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, known as SIGAR. The agency was created by Congress in 2008 to investigate waste and fraud in the war zone. In 2014, at Sopko's direction, SIGAR departed from its usual mission of performing audits and launched a side venture titled Lessons Learned, the $11 million project was meant to diagnose policy failures in Afghanistan so the United States would not repeat the mistakes the next time it invaded a country or tried to rebuild a shattered one. <laughs> the next time. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Yay. Well, lessons learned indeed. The Lessons Learned staff interviewed more than 600 people with first-hand experience in the war. Most were Americans, but cigar analysts also traveled to London, Brussels, and Berlin to interview NATO allies. In addition, they interviewed about 20 Afghan officials discussing reconstruction and development programs. And it goes on to explain they've published seven lesson-learned reports since 2016, but they've only included tiny bits of these interviews. Uh, uh, they haven't really published the interviews in any form. So the Washington Post engaged in its historic and brave legal battle to and two federal lawsuits in order to get these transcripts of these interviews out. So yes, yay, you know, now the public has the truth in their hands. The truth according to whom? Well, according to people like David Petraeus and some of the other war criminals who were responsible for this nonsense in the first place. So keep that in mind as we start to wade through this treasure trove of smelly deep state establishment nonsense. Um, for example, let's look at some of the examples of some of these explosive quotes that they highlight in these uh, in this series of articles from the Washington Post. And again, of course, everything will be linked up in the show notes so you can go read it all through for yourself and see for yourself if there's any there there. But let's take a look at this quote. Uh, it says, what did we get for this $1 trillion effort? Was it worth a trillion dollars? Jeffrey Eggers, a retired Navy SEAL and White House staffer for Bush and Obama, told government interviewers. He added, after the killing of Osama bin Laden, I said that Osama was probably laughing in his watery grave considering how much we've spent on Afghanistan. 
Okay, let's think about that quote for a second. Let's see how many of the boxes we can tick off here through from these quotes. I mean, first of all, we've got the was it worth a trillion dollar quote, which seems to suggest that this is an investment, essentially. And if if we reach a certain level of return on investment, then yes, we can say the war was worth it. Nothing to do with the actual justification for the war. Nothing to do with the rivers of blood that have been spilled in the waging of this war. Nothing to do about the human lives that have been lost, the lives that have been utterly transformed, the homes that have been obliterated, the families torn apart. None of the actual, real truth about the war itself. No, was, was it worth it? So that in and of itself is part of the establishment spin. Um, another part of this, of course, <laughs> After the killing of Osama bin Laden, I said that Osama was probably laughing in his watery grave. Osama bin Laden, mastermind of 9-11. Osama bin Laden, the arch-terrorist boogeyman. Osama bin Laden, the reason we were in Afghanistan. Osama bin Laden and he killed in a special forces raid and thrown in the ocean before anyone could see him. All of those boxes being checked in a quote like that. And hey, it's coming from this sexy, classified treasure trove of internal documents that the government totally didn't want to see, want you to see, guys. So it must be true. Let's let's go on. There's, there's a lot more in this series. Uh, here's a great quote. This is an interesting quote. Listen to this carefully. We don't invade poor countries to make them rich. James Dobbins, a former senior U.S. diplomat who served as a special envoy to Afghanistan under Bush and Obama, told government interviewers. Okay, yeah, so far, I agree. You don't invade poor countries to make them rich. We don't invade authoritarian countries to make them democratic. I agree, too. No, you don't drop bombs, humanitarian love bombs, to make some... Even if we, even if Libya was some horrible authoritarian repressive regime under Gaddafi, you don't drop love bombs on them to make it all better, as we have self-evidently seen. So I agree. I agree with this James Dobbins guy. He sounds right. We don't invade poor countries to make them rich. We don't invade authoritarian countries to make them democratic. So finish the next sentence. We invade violent countries to make them peaceful? And we clearly failed in Afghanistan. My God, think about that. Think about the setup to that quote. That's crazy. So this is a classic three-step quote. You would think, we don't invade poor countries to make them rich. We don't invade authoritarian countries to make them democratic. We don't invade violent countries to make them peaceful. Clearly, that's how you would finish that line of thought, isn't it? No, you don't drop bombs and suddenly make a country rich. You don't drop bombs and suddenly make a, a country democratic, assuming that's your, your goal. And you don't just drop bombs to make everything peaceful. That, that's clearly the setup that's, uh, that James Dobbins was putting out there. But no, he completely undermines that. We invade violent countries to make them peaceful, which is just staggering levels of nonsense. And we clearly failed in Afghanistan. So there you go. We can also check the, check the oh, failed in Afghanistan narrative. It was a failure. Oh, oops. You know, we bungled it. Oh, well, we'll have to find a way to get out now. We failed in Afghanistan, but we'll just have to keep there until we succeed. So, again, look at the establishment boxes that are being checked off here with, with just craziness. We invade violent countries to make them peaceful. But actually, it gets even worse. Think about this one. Okay, so here's from later on in the series. It says, After a succession of quick military victories in 2001 and early 2002, Bush decided to keep a light force of U.S. troops in Afghanistan indefinitely to hunt suspected terrorists. Soon, however, he made plans to invade another nation, Iraq, and Afghanistan quickly became an afterthought. 
Again, James Dobbins, career diplomat, told government interviewers it was a hubristic mistake that should have been obvious from the start. Again, yeah. Yes, Mr. Dobbins, I agree. It was a hubristic, well, I'm not even sure I would classify it mistake, but certainly it would have been obvious from the start to anyone with their head screwed on straight. Yeah, if you're going to invade Iraq right after Afghanistan, what do you think? But listen to the way he frames this. First, you know, sort of just invade one country at a time. I mean that seriously, Dobbins said, according to a transcript of his remarks. They take a lot of high-level time and attention, and we'll overload the system if we do more than one of these at a time. <laughs> this is the super-secret explosive revelatory information that the Washington Post wants to highlight from this incredible treasure trove of documents. People like Dobbins going around saying, you should just invade one country at a time, guys. If you had have invaded Afghanistan and completely conquered and subdued it and installed your puppet dictator and made sure that that was humming along, and then moved on and did the same thing in Iraq, then it would all be good. And then it's happiness. That's fine. We're, we're all sunshine and rainbows after that. But no, you had to spoil it and try to do two things at the same time. That's the problem with the Afghanistan war, according to... Dobbins and, by proxy, the Washington Post, who's highlighting his comments here. It goes on and on with checking the establishment narrative boxes here. Uh, later on in the series, I mean, the writing is on the wall now. Michael Callan, an, uh, an economist with the University of California at San Diego specializing on the Afghan public sector, told government interviewers, we spent so much money and there's so little to show for it. Once again, the we spent so much money and what do we have for it? What's our return on investment? Uh, a narrative. Callan and others blamed an array of mistakes committed again and again over 18 years. Because yeah, after 18 years, we can still call them mistakes. Oopsie. Oops. We did this for 18 years and we still have haphazard planning, misguided policies, and bureaucratic feuding. Again, as if that are the key issues. Those are the key issues that we should be focusing on. Um, many said the overall nation-building strategy was further undermined by hubris, impatience, ignorance, and a belief that money can fix anything. Much of the money, they said, ended up in the pockets of overpriced contractors or corrupt Afghan officials, while U.S.-financed schools, clinics, and roads fell into disrepair if they were built at all. Here's another big part of the establishment narrative BS spin that they put on the failure, quote-unquote, of the Afghanistan war, is that it's the U.S. coming in there with all their might and all their love and all their billions of billions of dollars, all sloshing the money around, practically throwing at the Afghans, saying, please, just take this money and I'll be better. Just, just build your country up again. But those damn Afghans, the corrupt Afghan officials, of course, it's the Afghans themselves who are to blame here, primarily. Just roll over, die, and get on with it, or... Or take the money and shut up and go away. That's that's what would have been the, the victory here, right? But it's those damn corrupt Afghan officials and eh, maybe a few overpriced contractors. But the U.S. financed schools, clinics, and roads are falling into disrepair because the U.S. are financing all this greatness for the Afghan people, but they don't even care to use it. Stupid Afghans. That's definitely part of the narrative establishment that they want to reinforce through this super secret treasure trove of internal documents. Which, again, paints the U.S. as the saviors who are genuinely there to make everything better and, and throw their money around to try to help because they're just doing happiness and sunshine. And yeah, maybe there's a few corrupt, uh, overpriced contractors, but we'll shove that to the side. As if the U.S. military doesn't know about these 
overpriced contractors and the corrupt Afghan officials and never speak about the missing trillions. Never, ever, ever speak about the missing trillions. I mean, if we're talking about where did the trillions go, why don't we apply that to the 21 plus question mark trillion that has gone missing from the DOD's coffers, let alone the government generally? That I've talked about many times on the program, most recently with Catherine Austin Fitz. So again, Let's, let's keep on. Uh, for example, they, the, the Post has one entire part of their, one article of their series here about the opium uh, poppy production aspect of the Afghanistan war, in which they do talk about the Taliban, for example, when they came in. And in six months, essentially, in 2000-2001, the, uh, the Taliban managed to chop poppy cultivation by 90%. Um, but since then... As the Washington Post explains, helpfully explains, yeah, poppy production has skyrocketed to all time historical high levels under the careful watch of the U.S. military and their NATO allies, but not from lack of trying. Honestly, guys, NATO's been doing their level best. They just don't know how to do it. They're sitting there scratching their heads thinking, how can we possibly, possibly do what the Taliban did? It's impossible. You just can't do it. And uh, it goes on to talk about this, and it says the Taliban had hoped the 2000 opium ban would win favor in Washington and entice the United States to provide humanitarian aid, but these hopes collapsed when al-Qaeda, which had been given sanctuary by the Taliban, launched the 9-11 attacks. So there you go, al-Qaeda narrative, 9-11, there it is. And, of course, all in the contract text of the, uh, the U.S. and their NATO allies were doing their level best. They just couldn't figure out a way to get those damn poppies done. Oh, oh well. It goes on and on. And as I say, please do actually go and read through these articles for yourselves. Uh, hopefully we can find a way to not give the Washington Post clicks from this. But at any rate, it is worth reading precisely so you can see the disconnect between the reality of the nothing burger that are these Afghanistan papers. Not even a nothing burger. That would be something. But uh, this is worse than that. This is actual establishment deep state narrative BS that is being leaked out. Oh, it's so exciting and sexy and secretive. The secret history of the Afghanistan war that the U.S. government doesn't want you to know about, guys. Uh, I want you to actually internalize the disconnect between the way this is being portrayed and what is actually there. And you can't do it unless you actually start reading through it yourself. But thankfully, the Washington Post has given you a handy-dandy guide to start the 25 essential documents from the Afghanistan papers that you could go and play establishment narrative bingo with this and see how many of those, uh, how quickly you can get a bingo from listening to people like, like who? Like David Petraeus? Like one of the arch criminals behind this whole enterprise is being cited here as one of these inside sources giving you the inside skinny on the on the Afghanistan war. What drove spending was the need to solidify gains as quickly as we could, knowing that we had a tight drawdown timeline, and we wound up spending faster than we would have if we felt we had forces longer than we did. So that quotation, which again, the Washington Post is highlighting as if this is some essential part of an essential document. Oh, we have to know about this hidden truth. Essentially, it's Petraeus whining because uh, Bush and then Obama and now Trump can't commit to uh, forces being there indefinitely, essentially. If we just knew we were there for 18 years, we could have, we could have used that money better. 
As if, again, as if that is the fundamental underlying points that we should be addressing with regards to the Afghanistan war. And it goes on and on and on and on and on like this. We have David Richards, the retired British Army general and former chief of defense staff, commander of NATO forces in Afghanistan for 2006 to 2007. He must have something really insightful to say. Yes, of course he does. He says, we were trying to get a single coherent long-term approach, a proper strategy, but instead we got a lot of tactics. There was no coherent long-term strategy. So, Again, the problem here, the problem with the Afghanistan war is that we just didn't have a good strategy for winning this war against whoever it is that we're fighting. If we just had the right strategy, if we just had more money, if we just had more time, if we just had more political will, if we just did a better war, if we just killed people more efficiently and faster and with less money, then it would have been a good war. But the problem is, oh, you know, these weak, weak, lily-livered uh, politicians won't commit to giving us the, in, the forever war on paper. Therefore, we have to use our tricks to try to spend the money as quickly as possible and waste a lot of it. Uh, it's just, it's, it's completely getting you to look at the wrong issues so that you will ask the wrong questions and get the wrong answers and not even approaching the realm of reality. And unfortunately, as I say, I've only seen one article in the, even in the independent media that truly challenges the fundamental underlying assumptions. Maybe there are more out there. I hope there are, but this is the one that came across my uh, radar. It's by Kit Knightley and it's up at off-guardian.org. I will of course include the link along with everything else in the show notes for this episode. So please do Uh, check it out for yourself. This is an excellent article and I want people to spread it around because it actually, unlike everything else I've seen on this, actually addresses the core points here. Uh, It goes under the headline, The Afghanistan Papers, Deep State Narrative Management. The subhead, let's be honest, most modern leaks do nothing but prop up the establishment. Very insightful. So let's, let's take a read. Kit Knightley writes, The big reveal for the Washington Post this week is the release of the Afghanistan Papers, a series of interviews and documents compiled in secret, and then the subject of a legal challenge from the U.S. government. The WAPO boldly boldly calls it a secret history of the war. But there's nothing here that's really secret, and very little actual history. What do they tell us? Absolutely nothing, except what we're supposed to believe. An awful lot of modern leaks are no such thing. They are Orwellian exercises in controlling the conversation. And this is no exception. Carefully making sure the establishment and the alternative are joined in the middle, controlled from the same source. It presents apologism, simplifications, and outright fabrication as if they're classified information, telling us about bad intelligence and a lack of coherent strategy, as if those are the biggest crimes of NATO in Afghanistan. The Guardian articles on the release reinforce the official version of 9-11. The WAPO itself drops nods to the mythologized death of Osama bin Laden. It's all about enforcing the establishment line, disguised as criticism. Real crimes are ignored, while smaller, simpler, well-intentioned mistakes are reluctantly acknowledged. Nowhere is the illegality of the invasion addressed. Not once is anyone accused of war crimes. The Guardian reports don't mention the word opium, which is bad enough. The Washington Post goes even further, daring to relate the U.S. Army's struggle to curb the spread of the opium trade. This is an outright lie. Before the 2001 invasion, the opium trade had been all but destroyed by the Taliban. The Taliban banned the production of heroin in 2001, just before the invasion. 
It dropped to almost nothing by the end of the year. Since the U.S. took control, the heroin production of the region has increased almost every year. Today, Afghanistan produces 90% of global heroin. All this, we are told, while the most powerful military force on the planet desperately tries to stop them. The Taliban did in six months what the U.S. Army has been unable to do in 18 years. They say it, and they expect us to believe it. It is nonsense. It's all just so pathetic. A weak attempt to clean up a mess 20 years in the making. Feeble efforts establish a narrative of false controversy by presenting us with a fully formed, ready meal alternative opinion so all those people who fancy themselves anti-establishment could gorge on outrage while never having to do the difficult job of canceling their newspaper subscriptions or doing their own research. Here's the real secret history of the Afghanistan war. It wasn't a failure. It was a success. In every facet, on every front, Afghanistan is exactly what America needed it to be. They drip-feed in the blood of young Americans, they destroy hundreds of thousands of Afghan lives, and they reap the rewards they always intended to reap. 1. The permanent, slow-simmer conflict gives them an excuse to keep thousands of U.S. military personnel in a country which borders Iran, Pakistan, and China, not to mention a host of ex-Soviet states. 2. It keeps military expenditure nice and high so congressmen, ex-generals, and everyone else on the boards of Boeing or Lockheed Martin get great big bonuses every year. 3. They have sole access to the rare earth elements and other vital metals in the Afghan mountains, lithium most, most importantly of all. 4. They have control of the world's opium industry, a vital cog in the relations of the U.S. intelligence agencies and organized crime. It's essentially reverse money laundering turning taxpayer funds into dark money that can be spent hiring mercenaries, organizing assassinations, arranging coups, or simply be stolen. An excellent point. Very insightful. And number five, they have access to all the radicalized young men they could ever want. A little jihadi farm where terrorists can be named, trained, and sent off to fight proxy wars in Syria or spread fear and chaos in the West. Afghanistan is a great asset to the empire, the U.S. deep state has a sp spent a fortune making it so they could at least be honest about it. Excellent. Very, very insightful article. Gets straight to the heart of the matter, straight to the point. I hope people will spread this article around because, as I say, it's the only one that I've seen that really gets to the bottom of this. And in a number of insightful ways. One of which, of course, is the whole ploy of dressing this up as a secret treasure trove of classified information. Putting that word on top of things. Oh, it's a leak. It's classified. It's secret. We had to wage a court battle to get this information out. Therefore, it must be A, truthful, and B, important when it is actually C, neither of the above. It is not truthful. It is not important, explosive, revelatory information. It is not secret. It is not a history of the Afghanistan war. It is nothing that it says on the cover or in the headlines or on the title. But that's precisely the point. They cover it up with just a name. They just say it enough. The Afghanistan Papers has exploded the myth. It's this super secret classified intelligence treasure trove. It's nothing of the sort. It's a bunch of interviews with a bunch of gen self-serving generals who just want to cover their own ass while throwing 
the entire idea of the war and everything that it represents to the side. Well, that doesn't matter. No, no. The, what the real problem is we didn't have enough money or we didn't get enough for our money or the politicians wouldn't commit to 58 years in, in Afghanistan or whatever nonsense they're trying to smuggle in the back door. And they do it through this secret classified information. Oh, you must... Oh, you must blow the lid off of this by revealing this to the public. Um, in the exact same way, we could think of other quasi-seemingly, oh, the anti-establishment. Oh, WikiLeaks boldly publishing the war logs, the internal propaganda of the U.S. government. Wow, it's secret. It's classified. This is leaked documents. It must be A, truthful, and B, important when it is actually C, neither of the above. But don't worry, guys. WikiLeaks has partnered with New York Times and The Guardian and every other MSM mouthpiece on the planet to publish this explosive trench of documents. Again, it's a very effective, or it has been an effective method of maintaining the establishment narrative while seeming to, oh, open the doors, oh, open the kimono, oh, don't look inside, please don't look at these documents, don't look at the generals talking amongst themselves about their own, the, the, the failures of the strategy or the fact we don't have a proper strategy to win the war. But don't ever, ever, ever fundamentally ask about the war itself, where it came from, what, it, what it's about, why it's being waged, whether it is in fact successful. Maybe it is actually doing what it is supposed to do, as Kit Knightley points out. So uh, some extremely important points there. And ones that I'm, I, I'd like to say I, I have made in various forms in the past about this. Uh, first of all, Yes, let's address the root of the root of the supposed fig leaf of justification for the illegal invasion and occupation of this country for the past 18 years, which of course was 9-11, Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden. That was the lie that we were all sold on, and that's why the U.S. and its NATO allies have been occupying that country Oh, sorry. They're only there in a in a military capacity of now. They're 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 not actually occupying the country. Uh, that's why they've been there for eighteen years, right? Of course not. And you already know that because you will remember from episode three hundred forty-five of this podcast, the secret lie that started the Afghan war, that there was a document that was produced at the time in the weeks after nine eleven, a briefing document by Frank Taylor at NATO, and it was given to the NATO allies in secret, behind closed doors, off the record, classified report that explained exactly what the U.S. knew and definitively pointed to, oh, it was Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. They were being, being protected by the Taliban in Afghanistan. This was an attack on one NATO member, so it's an attack on us all because of the collective suicide pact that is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So you all have to come in and help in a military capacity as we invade and occupy Afghanistan. That was what the public was sold on. And probably not one person in a million even knows about this Taylor report, which is the actual legal basis, the legal justification for why NATO is there at all. But as I pointed out in episode 345, with the help of uh, Professor Niels Herrett, uh, we pointed out that the Taylor Report actually has come out. It just wasn't called that or wasn't known as that. And of course, what did it reveal about what was really behind this justification? What did the U.S. government really know? What secret evidence and information was presented to the NATO allies at that time to get them to be on board with this invasion and occupation? Absolutely 
nothing. Crucially, if unsurprisingly, the document presents absolutely no proof or evidence establishing a link between Al-Qaeda and 9-11. After spending a full 15 pages talking in generalities about terror, about the U.S. government's officially sanctioned history of Al-Qaeda, and of previous attacks linked to Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, the document finally arrives at Part 3, purporting to demonstrate Al-Qaeda's involvement in the attacks. But Part 3 begins by admitting that the investigation into the attacks is still in the early stage, and that there are still gaps in our knowledge. It then goes on to detail circumstantial evidence that would not even rise to the level of warranting an indictment, let alone a conviction in a court of law. After asserting without evidence that several of the alleged hijackers had been identified as known Bin Laden associates, without clarifying the source of that identification, let alone how their identities and status as hijackers had been determined, we are then told that Bin Laden and his associates seem to be anticipating what we could only identify as an important event or activity. Finally, the document talks about how the incident is tactically similar to earlier attacks because it involved planning and a desire to inflict mass casualties. And that is it. That is the sum total of the evidence that both the document itself and Lord Robertson, evidently reading notes from Taylor's briefing, calls clear and compelling. That this is in my mind, with no doubt, simply the legal basis for 18 years of perpetual war in the Middle East. This is the basis for, for NATO's activation of Article 5. And, uh, and so what is in the document? What is the evidence? What is the evidence which Lord Robertson calls clear and compelling? None. There's absolutely no evidence in that paper. It's free for everyone to see, and I'm sure you'll present it to your audience. Once again, that's from episode 345 of this podcast on the secret lie that started the Afghan war featuring Professor Neil Serrett. And if you haven't seen or heard that podcast before, please do go and watch or listen. Or if you have, please rewatch or re-listen or send it out to your friends who have never heard that information because it is an important piece of this puzzle that goes to the actual heart of the matter, not the pretend quasi-establishment-directed faux outrage about the Afghanistan war, but the real root of the matter. What was this war really about? So we can check off the box quite carefully. It was not about getting Osama bin Laden or al-Qaeda or the Taliban or any of the other nonsense that the public was sold on in 2001. But it does raise the question, what was it really about? And this is something that I have been at pains to describe in my work on Afghanistan over the years. Please do do the Afghanistan search in the search bar on CorbettReport.com. I've had a number of reports over the years, including one from a few years ago called What You Are Not Being Told About the Afghanistan War that does go into this question of, well, what was it really about if it wasn't about 9-11? And as always, as 9-11 as itself, I would say, once again, 
events like this do not happen because one player benefits in one particular way, and that's the only reason. That's the full and complete explanation for an event like this. No, an event like 9-11, like the JFK assassination, like the Afghanistan war happens because a number of different players benefit in their own ways, so a number of different ways, and that interest converges on something like the invasion of Afghanistan, and I think that is demonstrably the case. There are a number of things uh, that are successes if you view it from the right lens, which is not the lens that they present to you in the Afghanistan papers or elsewhere. It is the lens of what is really going on. And this is something that I did try to articulate in that post, what you were not being told about the Afghanistan war back in 2016. So if the plan to invade Afghanistan was not about 9-11, then why were the neocons so eager to take over the country? Like any major military operation, there are multiple strategic objectives to be achieved. Securing a key transportation corridor from rich Caspian Sea oil and gas reserves has always been one important objective of the Afghanistan war. Soon after the Taliban came to power in 1996, the administration of Bill Clinton backed a secret plan for a pipeline through Afghanistan from Central Asia, which has vast reserves of oil and gas. The Taliban were offered a generous cut in the deal and secretly invited to Washington and Texas. They were treated royally, taken shopping and flown to tourist attractions like the NASA Space Center and Mount Rushmore. Their tour was so secret that no television news covered it. Most Americans knew nothing. By the time George W. Bush came to power, the link between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban was an embarrassment, and September the 11th gave Bush an opportunity to get rid of them. Today, Afghanistan is run by a regime installed by the Americans, and the pipeline deal is going ahead. The groundbreaking ceremony of Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India Tapi gas pipeline project was held on Sunday at the ancient city of Mari of Turkmenistan. Turkmenistan President uh, Gabungli Bardis Mohamdao, Afghanistan President Ashraf Ghani, Pakistan Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, and Vice President Mohammad Hamid Ansari were present at the function. The 25 year old concept of Tapi has come on ground reality and it will be completed by 2019. The ancient city of Mary in Turkmenistan witnessed the historic groundbreaking ceremony of the ambitious Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India gas pipeline project, that is TAPI project, that will ensure energy security in South Asia. Vice President Hamid Ansari, Pakistan Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, and leaders of Turkmenistan and Afghanistan attended the groundbreaking ceremony. The leaders pushed a button which started the welding process of pipes. The leaders appreciated the $7.6 billion TAPI pipeline project and termed it as an initiative to connect energy-rich Central Asia with energy-starved South Asia for a new dawn of economic engagement through regional connectivity. But this was by no means the only objective of the invasion. From the monetary perspective, there is as much as a trillion dollars of untapped mineral wealth in the country that could make it one of the world's leading mining centers in the coming years a mineral wealth that has been known about for decades. 
We might say Afghanistan hits the jackpot in a sense. A team of U.S. geologists and Pentagon officials discovering vast riches of untapped mineral deposits there. They say it could be worth as much as a trillion dollars for that country. A senior military official says that this could turn the war-torn nation into one of the biggest mining centers in the world. Uh, it's an astonishing piece of news. Steve Santani is live from Washington. Uh, Steve, how was this discovery made and, and how could they have not have known that it was there? Well, some people did know. The Soviets apparently made some preliminary maps when they occupied Afghanistan back in the 80s, and those maps recently came to the attention of a Pentagon team, which did some high-tech aerial surveillance to discover the extent of this massive potential wealth. Mm -hmm. And they found that Afghanistan has deposits of iron and copper that could make it a major producer in the world, and deposits of lithium that rival the large reserves in Bolivia. Lithium is used in batteries that power everybody's computers and blackberries. General David Petraeus, the CENTCOM commander, said there's stunning potential in that mineral wealth. Martha. And there is also the fact that the world's lucrative multi-billion dollar heroin trade sources almost entirely from the country, with up to 90% of the world's opium coming from the record crops that are being diligently protected by U.S. troops. So here's the question. Why are American troops now helping Afghan farmers grow that opium? Nick Schifrin reports from Afghanistan on a controversial new policy. In western Kandahar, poppy farmers score, kill, harvest their crop, and the Americans do nothing to stop them. U.S. soldiers greet farmers. Can you show me which poppy field is yours? They commiserate with farmers having a bad harvest. Tell him I'm very sorry for his field this year, and uh, hopefully he has a better harvest next year. And in one case, they even paid a farmer $1,000 after U.S. and Afghan special forces burned his crop. If you can come down to the base on my next visit, I will, I'll make a payment. This is controversial. The opium trade is the Taliban's main source of funding. Around here, this poppy isn't only a plant. It's the very basis of the economy here. Poppy grows everywhere in this area, and most of the farmers base their entire income for the entire season on this harvest. And that's why soldiers ignore and encourage the farmers. If the U.S. burned their crop, farmers would blame the U.S. for their poverty and turn toward the Taliban. Afghanistan today produces over 90% of the world supply of heroin. And the invasion of Afghanistan occurred at a moment when the Afghan government, together with the United Nations, had implemented a far-reaching drug eradication program. In other words, they were eliminating opium and, and implementing crop, rotation, uh, crop substitution with the support of the UN. They were congratulated by, in the United Nations General Assembly in um, fall of 2001. And in fact, what the Taliban government achieved was a 90, more than 90% collapse in opium production uh, recorded in, in, let's say, in 2001. Now, immediately upon the influx of U.S. troops and the occupation of Afghanistan, the production of opium sprung up to its historical levels and has increased multiple times since then. 
the oil and gas pipelines, the mineral extraction, the opium. All of these are factors in the ongoing occupation of Afghanistan years after any pretense of an excuse for NATO's presence evaporated. But there is one factor that has made Afghanistan the target of would-be world rulers for centuries. Its location. In 1904, Sir Halford John Mackinder PC, the director of the London School of Economics, published an essay in the Geographical Journal titled The Geographical Pivot of History. In that essay, Mackinder laid out the heartland theory, a theory that would come to dominate foreign policy and geostrategic thought. The heartland theory holds that the Earth's surface can be divided into a world island, the offshore islands, and the outlying islands. The heartland lay at the center of the world island and the Eurasian landmass, and its importance was summarized in Mackinder's famous dictum, Who rules East Europe commands the heartland. Who rules the heartland commands the world island. Who rules the world island commands the world. This is why control of the Central Asian region, and Afghanistan in particular, has been prized by empire since the 19th century, when Britain and Russia engaged in diplomatic struggle, intelligence operations, military conflicts, and subterfuge for control over Afghanistan in what was called the Great Game. And this is why former National Security Advisor and perennial Washington insider Zbigniew Brzezinski was able to predict in his 1997 magnum opus, The Grand Chessboard, that the first major war of the 21st century would take place in Afghanistan. But fast forward to 1997, and in that year, our old friend Zbigniew Brzezinski released his book, The Grand Chessboard, American Primacy and Its Geostrategic Imperatives. Because evidently, Zbigniew Brzezinski was not so shy about proclaiming the quest for world domination. Uh, he also did not mince his words about the Eurasian heartland and how important it is to America's global primacy. For America, the chief geopolitical prize is Eurasia. For half a millennium, world affairs were dominated by Eurasian powers and peoples who fought with one another for regional domination and reached out for global power. Now, a non-Eurasian power is preeminent in Eurasia, and America's global primacy is directly dependent on how long and how effectively its preponderance on the Eurasian continent is sustained. He goes on to refine Mackinder's heartland notion down to a specific area that he calls the Eurasian Balkans. And this area is precisely the Central Asia Caucasus region. He explains its, important thus, its importance thusly. The Eurasian Balkans, astride the inevitably emerging transportation network meant to link more directly Eurasia's richest and most industrious Western and Eastern extremities, are also geopolitically significant. Moreover, they are of importance from the standpoint of security and historical ambitions to at least three of their most immediate and more powerful neighbors, namely Russia, Turkey, and Iran, with China also signaling an increasing political interest in the region. But the Eurasian Balkans are infinitely more important as a potential economic prize. An enormous concentration of natural gas and oil reserves is located in the region, in addition to important minerals, including gold. The use of the metaphor of the Balkans is doubly evocative for students of history. It represents not only the strife and ethnic conflict we saw in the Balkanization of Yugoslavia at the end of the 20th century, but also the powder keg of tensions that ignited the First World War at the beginning of the 20th century. 
Subsequently, Brzezinski predicted that the first great war of the 21st century would take place in this Eurasian Balkans region, and lo and behold, four years after uh, the Grand Chessboard was published, the first great war of the 21st century was being waged in Afghanistan by the United States and its NATO allies. Meet the new great game, same as the old great game. This time, it's NATO against China, Russia, and what might loosely be termed a resistance bloc, but the idea is almost the same. Dominate Central Asia Caucasus and use it as a pivot point to dominate the world. Brzezinski had no crystal ball. He did not know that the neocons would be in office in 2001. He had not seen NSPD-9. He did not know how 9-11 would be used as the fig leaf to cover the naked ambition of NATO's land grab. But he did understand the geostrategic imperatives of world empires, and he knew that control over Central Asia was crucial to control over the world. Without NATO's Afghanistan toehold, the US hegemon would have no chance of countering China and Russia in the new great game of the 21st century. This is what Afghanistan was, is, and always will be about. Empire. The naked ambition of would-be world rulers. As long as that ambition remains unchecked, NATO will continue to keep its forces in the region at any cost. And as Russia and China continue to exert their own influence in the region, that deployment brings us one step closer to direct military confrontation. And the people of Afghanistan, once again, are crushed underfoot. Mere pawns in the game for world empire. Yes, Afghanistan is a key transport corridor. It is a key area for untapped mineral wealth. It is a key part of the entire international drug trade, facilitated and enabled, of course, by the deep state itself. And it is geographically extremely important at this time, being in an extremely important area on the doorstep of Iran and, and Pakistan and China. Obviously, a very geopolitically sensitive location at this point in time for all of these reasons, not for one of these reasons, but for all of these reasons and more, I'm sure, Afghanistan was invaded. And let's again keep in mind what this war is really about. This isn't about dollars or return on investments. It's not even about geopolitical aims and grand strategies. This is about human life. We all know by now that the real terrorists the politicians in the suits and ties and the banksters that pull their strings, are waging their war of terror on multiple fronts, for multiple reasons. Domestically, it rallies the population around the flag, keeping the flock in check. At the same time, it justifies the buildup of the police state control grid to catch the thought criminals who resist. It also writes a blank check for the illegal wars of aggression abroad. Simply place your terrorist boogeyman in the square of the chessboard you're looking to occupy and, hey presto, you've got yourself an excuse to invade. Even if you accidentally end up supporting them. Right, Uncle Sam? But of course the politicians, their string pullers, and their fellow travelers benefit from the war of terror in a more straightforward sense. They get to use the terror scares that they themselves create to drum up billions upon billions in the name of fighting the boogeyman. We've all heard of the $640 toilet seat and other ridiculous examples of Pentagon overspending, but these stories tend to trivialize the abuses by the military defense contractors whose entire industry is built on providing overpriced solutions to made-up problems. 
After all, the Pentagon itself just admitted it could cut $2 billion from its budget by shutting down some of the needless bases and defense facilities that have been built around the globe in the name of the American Empire. But $2 billion is chump change. In the 15 years since 9-11, $1 trillion has been spent building up the police state in the American homeland itself. Meanwhile, the Defense Department has been spending over $600 billion per year maintaining the American military in the post-9-11 era. Four to six trillion dollars of that was spent on the Iraq and Afghanistan wars alone, the most expensive wars in U.S. history. Combined defense spending, including Homeland Security, DOD, State Department, defense-related debt interest, and other defense costs, have reached the highest levels in modern history over the past decade. From a Cold War-era high in the 1980s of $3,500 for every man, woman, and child in the United States, to a 1990s low of $2,500, the figure has since breached $4,000. Just look at the chart. It isn't hard to see exactly when the trend reversed, and the good times began to flow for the military-industrial contractors. It was 9-11, the birthday of the War of Terror and the new era of Homeland Security. There are other numbers we could throw in here. The billions upon billions in military aid sent to the co-perpetrators of the War of Terror, including the $38 billion that has been promised Israel over the next 10 years. The $1.5 trillion joke known as the F-35 fighter jet. The $6.5 trillion of year-end adjustments in the ongoing, never-ending saga of the Pentagon's missing trillions. But we have to be careful not to fall into the psychopath's trap. The real costs of the War of Terror cannot be measured in dollars and cents. They are not tallied in a ledger. They are not about money at all. The real cost is paid in blood. The blood of a million dead Iraqis. The blood of the hundreds of thousands of murdered men, women, and children in Afghanistan and Pakistan. The blood that is being shed right now in Syria, in Libya, in Yemen, and in all of the countries that have crossed through the crosshairs of the NATO, American, and Israeli terrorists. It's measured in the devastation of towns and cities that once bustled with life, in the families torn apart by drone bombings, in the havoc of the hundreds of thousands forced to flee their homes, leave their families and their homeland and their former life behind as everything they knew is torn to shreds. It's measured in the blood of the servicemen and women themselves, lied to, propagandized, and indoctrinated their entire lives, given a ticket out of grinding poverty by the military, shot up with experimental vaccines, and shoved into the meat grinder for tour of duty after tour of duty. And then, upon returning home, left to rot in rundown hospitals and ignored by the glad-handing politicians and their military-industrial cronies as a suicide epidemic gradually thins their ranks. This is the true cost of the War of Terror, and it is incalculable. And none of it, absolutely none of it, will come to an end until the public stops believing the false narrative of the War of Terror and the lies that have brought it about. Much like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, the real terrorists can only survive if you believe in them. Death. Destruction. Bloodshed, lives lost, families torn apart, homes obliterated, entire cities laid to waste. These are the real costs of the Afghan war, or any war. That's what this is about. It isn't about dollars spent 
uh, to overpriced contractors or corrupt Afghan officials. It isn't about having the right winning strategy so that you can better, more efficiently wage this warfare and bloodshed. No, it is the bloodshed itself. That is the real cost. And don't let the establishment distract you with their BS nonsense behind their classified, secret, leaked, internal transcripts of interviews with the very people who are waging these wars. Don't let them distract you with that and try to spin it away so that they can get you asking the wrong questions and inevitably giving the wrong answers. Some very important things to think about. I hope you will use the resources that I've provided here today, especially in the show notes. Please do click through to the show notes. Get these documents, internalize them for yourself, and also spread them to others who may not be aware of this, because if they can lock us into the establishment BS narrative from the start, then anything that seems to be going against that narrative can actually serve to reinforce it. It's a basic trick, but one that is often used and one that we have to confront head on. Well, that's it for this very important episode of the podcast. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again very shortly.